I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga and in this episode, we discuss the concept of property covenants and also going to things like zoning. Now, this would mainly be Victoria-based because that's where I live, but you may find it's quite similar in most of the states and territories, so you need to check in with your local authorities. But the main aim of this episode is to highlight some common zonings and overlays and you know restrictions that you might encounter when uh, looking at properties. And I think it's really important that you pay attention to that. And it's really important, particularly when purchasing a property or even considering a knockdown rebuild project. So even though this is Victoria-based, you'll notice the concepts here are very similar across the state. So make sure you check in with the local guidelines. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember, educate, empower and entertain and make sure you pay yourself. So let's get started. Righto. Now, before we go into the topic of covenants, zonings, and overlays, I had a question, or actually more of a comment from, you know, I'm going to call this person Kay, and they contacted me uh, recently, and they happen to be a healthcare worker, and they contacted me recently, um, and this is what they said. Hi, Dev. Thanks for doing what you do. Been a keen listener for some months now. Just wanted to highlight my experience in a recent knockdown rebuild project. During 2020 lockdowns in Melbourne, I bought an old home with a plan to demolish and build the house of our dreams, a forever home. We got the home for a great price, and as during economic uncertainty, homes didn't get much attention, so we bought it sight unseen. I knew there was a covenant on the property at the time of the sale, which stated to the effect of, the front facade of any home that needs to be built here needs to be brick look. A solicitor did pick this up prior to us buying the home, and we were fully aware about it. The property was rented for 18 months since we purchased it while we drew plans to build our dream home. Over the months, I'd actually forgotten about this covenant and so did my family. A dream home is a French provincial facade which is rendered. Eventually, after 12 months of planning, designs and everything was ready to go, we had demolished the home and we sent the plans for final approval by the council. It was at this stage our builder contacted us to sign a letter We'd stated to the effect of, we knew about the covenants and we agree for the build to proceed and we won't hold them responsible, given that the building is in breach of the covenant. I refuse to sign this and we're working with the council right now about these covenants. So the moral of the story, Dev, is one, home building is an emotional decision. Two, it can consume your aspirations where the actual facts can get lost. Three, builders should pick up on this stuff but didn't in our case, and we paid additional price. And I'm not blaming the builder, but it would have been nice if they did pick it up at the time of designing. 
Number four is have a reminder system at every design phase, particularly for knockdown rebuilds, to check for things like covenants. You must have a system for this. Hope this helps others who listen to your podcast and want to knock down rebuild. And thanks for what you do. Wow. Okay, that is a phenomenal story. And thanks for sharing this um, with me and also to all the listeners. Now, I have spoken to Kay about this personally, and I actually happen to know Kay. So um, the build project for Kay was significant. So this was a massive oversight on Kay's behalf. Um, and I guess to some extent, the builder's behalf. But remember, as a purchaser, Kay was completely responsible for the decision to purchase this particular property with a covenant. So essentially, ultimately, it's their responsibility to do the due diligence. So it's a phenomenal story. Now, um, I guess the main concept in this particular story is covenant. So I wanted to also highlight other things like zonings, uh, which are essential and also overlays. So let's systematically break down this concepts. And again, this is mainly related to Victoria. So you need to check up your local guidelines in your state. But I've noticed that it's very similar across the state. Some states have more zonings, other states have more overlays, but the principles are exactly the same. And I think it's important that you know that these things exist so that you can actually look into it. So what is a covenant when it comes to property? Now, it's sometimes known as restrictive covenants or deed of covenant, depending on the state. Now, the purpose of the covenant is to restrain how you build or alter your property. So why would anyone do this? Why put a covenant on a property? Well, people install covenants because they want to protect the value of the property or to limit the misuse of the land for developmental projects, which do not fit in with the streetscape. Now, let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy and Rob are on the hunt for their first home, but are interested in knockdown rebuilds of a single-dwelling, double-storey property. They're not interested in multi-units or townhouse developments. They inform their solicitor and buyer's agent specifically about their requirements. The buyer's agent has access to some of the single-dwelling pockets in their suburb or area of choice. Now, this is a common example of how land can be sold with restrictive covenants on it. Now, because Amy and Rob want to build a single-dwelling double-storey property, they have specifically instructed their buyer's agent to try and access some of the single-dwelling homes or any homes in their pockets in the suburb of their choice with a single-dwelling covenant. Now, this means that developers really can't buy it because it can't be subdivided and you can't build multiple units or townhouses. And in fact, this is often the case in some Melbourne suburbs. And this prevents misuse of land and also protects the existing single dwelling values in that street. Now, here's a tip. If you're a home buyer looking to knock down rebuild project and want to build a single dwelling home, try and find these streets that have these covenants and these suburbs because it means you may not be competing against developers, but it may mean that you compromise on the size or the particular type of house that you want to build. Now, there are two definitions within covenants, uh, which I've come across, which we need to understand. The definitions are burdened land, this is a land which is burdened with a covenant and benefited land. This is a land which is benefiting from the covenant. Now, in Amy's case, if she buys a land, then the surrounding land benefits from the burdened land. Now, note the purpose of the covenant is not really anything to do with individuals. 
For example, I don't think you can install a covenant which states single-storey property only if the underlying reason for this property is that it enables a better view for the benefited land. So you've got to make sure that when you have covenants, it's got to be for the benefit of that land. It, it, It can't be for the benefit of you as an individual. So what are the requirements of a covenant? Well, first of all, it's enforceable by common law and it's usually an agreement and sometimes unofficial agreements do exist, but it's pretty rare. And the covenant must be for the benefit of the land and again, not for individuals. And this is called a touch and concern principle. So um, I think it's some sort of legal term that they use, particularly in the sale of property or designing um, in areas and installing covenants. So the covenant has to be... um, for the touch and concern principle, it has to sort of, you know, fulfill that requirement. Now, how do you actually find out if a property has a covenant on it? Now, it's usually in the title documents and your solicitor should be looking for this and should be picking you up on this. And the whole point is it's not meant to be hidden or be difficult to find. It's an easy lookup process and vendors want you to know about it. So they really shouldn't be hiding it. And sometimes such covenants can be complex. So be sure to check with your solicitor about any covenants and they should meticulously explain it to you. That's why you have a solicitor um, who can go through it with you. Now, there are various types of property covenants out there. Most commonly, it's a restriction on how your property can look from the outside. It has nothing to do with what you do on the inside of the property. So that's really important. And the other most common type is developers restricting how many units can be built on the lot. Sorry, not, not developers, sorry, um, the councils or, um, or the people or the jurisdictions involved. And developers want to be able to build as many units on the property as possible because they're going to make a lot of money out of it. And sometimes you can have what sort of structural materials that can be used to build the property as well. Remembering it is in the best interests of the developer to, um, you know, sometimes... Um, if they if they want to install a covenant and you think, well, hang on, why, why would a developer want to do it? Because it isn't against their best interests. Well, sometimes a developer may want to do it because they reduce the number of properties to the optimal number to maximise their profits and also to maintain the streetscape. Because remember, they've got to sell these properties and if they just build like humongous units or um, apartments, uh, yes, they're going to make potentially more money out of it, but there is sort of a sweet spot where you kind of lose the value of the property if you just do it too much. So developers can install it, but other people can as well. Now, some of the other types of covenants or types of covenants that people might install are, for example, the size of a building, whether it be single or double story. We talked about that with Amy and Rob's example. Landscaping, what sort of landscaping is allowed? Um, The colours and materials used to build the property, you know, does it have to be brick or timber or metal of exterior extensions or amendments that you want to make? Um, Sustainability requirements of extensions. So I know a suburb near where I live where you can't build uh, properties um, from large-scale builders. You need to get a unique property built for that particular land because they have sustainability requirements uh, for that particular um, segment of land. Privacy measures, uh, what sort of things that you need to do to protect your privacy in that property in your land, but also the privacy of your neighbours. And of course, things like ancillary structures, you know, where your bins go, how visible your air conditioning units are, whether you have a two-storey clothesline, for example. So there's a lot of different covenants uh, that exist and and you can actually make up your own if you want to and, and get it installed in your property. Now, is there any benefit, though, of having a covenant? So it sounds all very restrictive. 
is there actual benefit to doing this? And the answer is yes, because if you're a property owner, you want to ensure that all quality of the build within a development or area is relatively standard and it's up to standard. And it means that streetscapes can be maintained and it maintains a certain look. Now, in Kay's situation, um, the covenant specifically stated a brick look to the front. So that's what the owners wanted when they installed that covenant. Okay. So, and who actually creates them? Do councils have any role in this? Do they create it or monitor it? And the answer is no. This is not a council or local government thing. It's essentially a private agreement under common law. So that's an interesting thing because I always thought that covenants were installed by jurisdictions or councils or governments. But yeah, it turns out it's actually a completely non-governmental thing to do. Um, how long do they last? The short answer is usually forever, but it depends on whether they have a specific state expiry date on them. So if they have a stated expiry date, then that's the expiry date. But if there's no expiry date, essentially you're stuck with it for life. And it sometimes states, for example, runs with the land in quotations, um, which is another way of saying forever. And does it really matter if you buy a property with covenant? Yes and no. In Kay's case, it mattered a lot. I mean, they were having a huge, massive project, knockdown rebuild. And it mattered a lot as they wanted to specifically build a French provincial home for their new home. Now, this is not allowed under their existing covenant. So they need to apply for a planning permit to break this covenant if possible. Um, And sometimes in other examples, such as in our example of Amy and Rob, it can actually work in their favour with single dwelling covenants because they wanted to demolish and rebuild a home, but only build a single dwelling double story covenant, um, sorry, double story home. So they were looking for a single dwelling covenant property. So it just depends. So if there is a covenant, it really needs to be checked out carefully because some covenants even stipulate colour of paint and, you know, like I said, where your air conditioning units can be placed, etc. And it doesn't really affect what you do inside the property. And it's really important that people understand that. So does it really matter? Well, yes and no, depending on your specific circumstance. So everything is personal and that's why everything in this, you know, Finance is personal. That's why it's called personal finance and same with property as well. Is there a way to remove a property covenant? Well, you can. Um, It's actually quite difficult. Um, And in fact, that is what Kay is trying to do currently. And um, there are three main ways to do this. And this is in the state of Victoria. Now, the big gangbuster way to do it is to go straight to the Supreme Court. Now, you'll need to prove the burdened and benefited land concepts and touch and feel aspects of covenants do not actually apply anymore. Um, the second way you can do it is you can actually apply for an amendment to the planning scheme called a Part 3 of the Planning and Environmental Act 1987. Again, state-based, so check your local guidelines. And this is usually for large developments and not really for individual homes. And the third way you can do it is you can just apply for a planning permit, which is likely what Kay is doing. And this is clearest way forward. And then this just goes through the council process. And this is under Part 4 of the Planning and Environmental Act of Victoria of 1987. Again, state-based. Now, the process to actually um, get a planning permit to remove a restrictive covenant, roughly, is number one, the landowner signs the applications. Number two is you've got to make the application to the responsible authority, such as the local council or sometimes Minister of Planning, with supported documents about burdened and benefited lands. And number three is you've got to send a notice um, to all the affected landowners around the area and you've got to publish it in the local newspaper and put a sign outside of the land. There's a whole process about this. Um, and when I was researching this, I was actually interested, you know, a covenant 
is not really related to the government. So they don't really place covenants on properties. But when you actually want to remove a covenant, you've got to ask the permission of the local government. So there you go. They, they, they don't make up the rules, um, but they kind of do in some respect, which I found was very, very interesting. But it's, it's a bit of a process that you need to go through. And then basically the councils will consider the application and then they'll ensure, you know, if there's any material loss when removing a restrictive covenant or, you know, this is especially true for any covenants after the 25th of June 1991. Um, don't ask me why, but there are various rules and dates on this. So you need to look into it if you're considering this in Victoria uh, or actually look into it in your own state. That date may vary. And if the council rejects the application, then the owner can go to VCAT in Victoria, which is the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal. Uh, if the council approves it, then any, any objectors can then go to VCAT in Victoria. Now, in New South Wales, I think it's called New South Wales CAT. In South Australia, for example, it's called SA CAT. So there are always equivalents in your state or territory. So you just need to look it up and learn the process and really, really learn about this because I think it really does affect, you know, people that, that buy properties. And, you know, there's so many comments on online forums, um, you know, My Millennial Money Medical or My Millennial Money, the main main Facebook group about buying property. Um, this is, you know, potential oversight that if you don't know about it, it can really sting you uh, like it has for Kay, but there are ways to get out of it. And hopefully this episode has highlighted some of the, you know, pitfalls about buying a property with a covenant and some of the benefits as well, particularly in Amy and Robbie's, uh, Robbie's case, Amy and Rob's case, beg your pardon, that I've just discussed in an, in a, in a, in an example. Now, before we go on to the other concepts, let's take a quick ad break. And when we come back, we'll talk about zoning and overlays. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Righto, we're back. Now, let's move on to some of the other concepts that you need to be aware of when searching for a property or thinking about buying a property. Now, that is zoning and overlays. And this is mainly in the state of Victoria, which is where I live, but it's similar in each state. So, be sure to check in with your local authorities. Now, for whatever reason, Victoria seems to have a lot more zones and overlays than other states. Not sure why, but as a proud Victorian, it's probably because we're very special. So, what is zoning? Um, well, this is referring to the type of property and the nature of its intended use. 
So when you buy something in a specific zone, it defines the legally permitted uses for that specific property in that specific area. So based on the zones, it also defines whether you need to have a planning permit to construct a specific type of building or additions to your building. So, you know, in layman's terms, we have zones to make sure that we have residential zones and commercial zones and industrial zones. So, you know, I live in a property and I don't want a big factory being built next to my house. You know, I want to make sure that I'm in a residential area. And that's why it's sort of designated. And that's usually decided by the state government, uh, particularly for new suburbs, etc. So basically, zoning is a bit of a policing mechanism. So people don't build things in areas they're not supposed to, to be building those certain things. So uh, like I said, a massive industrial site right in the middle of a residential zone. Now in Victoria, the main types of zones are residential, agriculture, commercial and industrial. And within these zones, there are specific schedules. And there are also other zones like road zones and park zones, etc. But we won't go too much into those in this episode. But, you know, every main zone, like a residential zone, it has a specific schedule associated with it. And in the schedule, there are restrictions, there are limits, and it's a bit of a rule book for each type of zone. So you can actually look it up online, particularly in the state of Victoria. And I will talk about how to get that uh, access to that very soon. It's, a, it's basically a free website. So why is zoning important? Well, when you build a home, you're likely to require a loan. And when you try and obtain that loan, the bank will want to know everything about the property which you intend or have already bought. So if you want to buy a house, you need a loan, the bank will want to know everything about the property. So the bank may not lend you a loan for a home which is zoned in a commercial zone because it can affect the value of the property. Remember, the bank doesn't care about you. They care about their bottom line. They want to lend you money to make money off you. And in case you can't pay it back, they want to be able to sell an asset to get their money back as easily, quickly, as risk-free as possible. So the bank may not lend you the money or they may turn around and say, we're only going to lend you a portion of the total sale price, citing they're taking risks due to the zoning irregularities. And often with commercial zone, um, zones and commercial loans, the loan-to-value ratio is actually capped at a much lower rate. It's usually, I think, at about 70%, whilst for residential loans, it can be up to 90 95%, depending on your personal circumstance, profession, net worth, etc. So, is there any schedules for zones? And the answer is yes. For a particular zone, there may be a schedule attached to it. And schedule is just a PDF document. Now, you can actually go to Vic Maps Planning Scheme, which is mapshare.vic.gov.au, which is an online tool in Victoria. You can type in any address, even the place that you currently live in, and check the zonings, the schedules for the property you may wish. And the schedule goes into details about specific restrictions or design guidelines which may apply to the property. Now, this is completely different to covenants. Remember, the zonings is done by local governments. Covenants are not. It's a private agreement. So, slightly different. So, in the schedule, for example, as part of your zone, they may have setbacks from side or front fence, vegetation protection rules, including specific species of plants, trees, bushery, types of dwellings which can or cannot be constructed, the intended purpose of the buildings, etc. So there's lots and lots of little things that you might need to check. Now, you may wish to check at this point in your state if you have, or territory, beg your pardon, if you have such an online tool for you to easily find out the zoning. So basically, I don't trust anything from the vendor statement. I always do my own due diligence. Um, in Victoria, a vendor statement when you buy a property is called Section 32. 
So personally, I always correlate it myself with the real information online. And in Victoria, that information is relatively easy to get. And can zones change? And the answer is yes, absolutely. In fact, this has been a controversial element of local government meetings in Victoria, particularly in the last 10 years, right? I mean, the suburb, which has a long-standing heritage of having single dwellings in the area, can have its zones changed because of demand in the area for housing, or the local council believes the zoning is now not appropriate, so they change it to make way for high-density housing. This has happened before in all states and territories, and in Victoria and Melbourne, uh, this is not unusual. This, of course, can affect your property values in that area if you live there. So a big sticking point in Victoria, and especially in Melbourne, is whether a land can be developed into multi-unit or apartment housing. And this usually attracts developers in auctions and drives up prices, often to the frustration of families who want to build their first home. So at the end of the day, who makes these decisions? Usually it's the local governments, the councils. And of course, if they change the zones, what are they going to change it to? They're going to change it to something that it's going to benefit them. And you know, they may say that high density housing is appropriate for that particular zone uh, moving forward because the landscape's changed. And of course, the side effect of that is if you have a house and next door there's a massive apartment complex being built, well, that might downgrade the value of your property, but the council may not care because remember, if there's, you know, 20, 20 apartments being built in their building, they're going to get a lot of money from rates. They're going to get a lot of money from you know, service charges that they're going to charge these um, tenants or these homeowners in that apartment. Whereas if you just have one house and a land, they're not going to get it much money. So obviously the councils, I'm sounding like a bit of a conspiracy theorist here, but the councils and local governments have a particular vested interest and they control the rule book when it comes to these sort of things, right? So unfortunately, there's something that you should be really aware of. What about overlays? Now, overlays are interesting. This is more specific to your land, and it doesn't really affect entire suburbs, whereas zoning, you know, practically affects entire suburbs. So in recent times, it's interesting. I mean, I live in Melbourne's eastern suburbs and the eastern suburb councils in Melbourne have decided to make entire areas subject to overlays. And this happened in a major council recently over the last few years uh, uh, of inner eastern suburbs in Melbourne. And the reason they do that is because they don't want people to, you know, completely remove trees and moonscape their land and build monstrosities. And, um, uh, you know, th- this kind of affects developers and knockdown rebuild projects or renovators and what they could potentially do with their property. So it, it's vital that they pay attention to any overlays. Now, whenever there's changes of the zonings or overlays, the council has to contact individual homeowners. So they send out letters, petitions, meetings, and you can actually object to that. So, um, you know, pay very close attention. Don't ignore it if you're a property owner, particularly if you're living in that property, because all of these changes may affect the value of your property. So what are the types of overlays that are there in Victoria? Um, well, again, depends on the state or territory. There are three basic types in Victoria. One is land management, which deals with soil type, fire risk and erosion potential. So things like flood zones, etc. The second type of overlay is a heritage overlay, which um, a lot of the inner suburbs in Melbourne have heritage overlays. So you've got to be a little bit careful about if you want to buy property. It doesn't really affect what you do inside the property, but there's severe restrictions on what you can do outside the property. So there are details in the heritage overlays, parts of a building that you must conserve. In most cases, again, it's all external. 
Um, environmental and landscape overlays. Now, is your land subject to protected flora or fauna? This impacts your ability to remove vegetation or change the makeup of the landscape. And within each of these overlaps, there are f- other overlays, right? Such as vegetation protection overlay. And this details specific significance of a low uh, local piece of flora, right? So, I mean, if you don't research this well, then you'll impact your ability to build a home or it may impact your own home uh, in terms of property values. So, you know, a real life example is if I'm hunting for a property and that property has a vegetation overlay and I'm a potential buyer, personally, I tend to avoid it because vegetation overlays are very restrictive in the state of Victoria. So why would I take the chance to buy a property um, and to have a massive tree in the land, which is essentially not removable, not to mention the potential health and safety risk associated with it. And unfortunately, in Victoria, due to these restrictions, um, you know, some people have died in their own homes because you're just not allowed to remove trees. And when there's storms and wind and, you know, bad weather, some of these trees fall over. So um, if you Google it, there has been some very notable cases in the state of Victoria where people have requested trees to be removed, which have been denied by the local councils and governments. And unfortunately, during a really bad weather event, that tree has fallen over and killed people. So, you know, that's a health and safety risk. So again, you know, you need to know what restrictions you're getting yourself into when potentially own a property uh, or you're buying property. Now, renters, you know, probably don't really concerned about this. There's not much you can do, but certainly when it comes to owning and investing, it's a real, real issue that you need to deal with. Now, I just want to tie this in with an example to highlight all of these concepts, okay? So let's use an example. Amy is a radiographer. Her partner is a police officer. And the combined family income is around $170,000 per year. And they've been in the market for the first time and start their family, They've come across a property and noted it has the following overlays. General residential zone, schedule four, significant landscape overlay, schedule nine. Before making an offer on the property, they have the site inspected by an arborist who provides them with an opinion. The arborist report states there are six trees on the land, two of the trees are diseased, three of the trees are weed species, and one of the trees just a stump. One of the tree, though, is a very tall tree, greater than eight metres, and is in very good health. And unfortunately, this tree is kind of in the middle of the land. Upon further looking at the significant landscape overlay guidelines, there is a clause which states any vegetation which is within three metres from the boundary of a building, excluding sheds or pools, etc., can be removed without a permit. The arborist confirms the healthy tree is 2.6 metres from the nearest building boundary. Now, Amy and her partner decide to make an offer knowing full well that diseased trees, weed species and any tree within the boundary of a building three metres can be removed without too much problems. And this means they can extend the home or knock down rebuild with confidence. Now, let's use another example, though, to highlight a different scenario. In this time, Amy is a doctor working full-time. Her partner is an architect. Both are interested in upgrading to a larger land and want to have more features in the brand new home they wish to construct. The minimum requirements for them are it has to be a double-storey home, there must be a pool, and there must be a tennis court. So they come across a land for sale, which is around 2,600 square metres in the heart of their suburbs of their dreams in Melbourne. They know a very tall tree present about two-thirds of the distance down the land and about five metres from the west boundary of the land. 
The overlays on the land are General Residential Zone Schedule 2, Vegetation Protection Overlay Schedule 3, Significant Landscape Overlay Schedule 9. So they too engage an arborist, and the report states the tree on that land is of significance and cannot be removed. Furthermore, a tree protection zone, TPZ, needs to be established during any construction with specific diameters. Now, I digress a little bit, but if you want to know what a tree protection zone is, basically there's a calculation. There's, there's like a detailed calculation that you can do to calculate a tree protection zone and root protection zone. And there's actually calculators available online. And all you need to know is a diameter at the breast height of a tree or at one metre height. And using that, it gives a rough estimate of structure root zone and tree protection zone. So, for example, if the diameter of a trunk of a tree at one metre is 130 centimetres, the tree protection zone works out at 14.2 metres around the tree and the structural root protection works out to be at 3.7 metres So what does all that mean? Well, potentially it means they can't construct anything within the tree protection zone and they can't dig anything in the root protection zone. So in this particular case, you know, if the actual tree was 130 centimetre diameter, the tree protection zone works out to be 14.2 metres and the structural root protection zone is 3.7 metres. So they can't dig anything within that 3.7 metre border and they can't potentially build anything in that 14.2 metre tree protection zone. That's massive. If you draw a line from, you know, a trunk of a tree, 14.2 metres out, that's the tree protection zone, particularly during the building phase of a property. Now, although the land was significant in this particular case and would have accommodated their dream home, they would not be able to construct a tennis court or a swimming pool because of this particular restriction and this particular tree, so they decide not to purchase the land. They also note developers were not interested for this exact same reason, as they couldn't maximise land potential. So that's two examples where zonings and overlays and protection zones can actually impact on the decision-making when you're looking for property. That's about it for this episode. We covered a lot of ground in this episode. And just to recap, Covenants, Kay's experience has been less than optimal. Don't let emotions get out of control. Make sure you check for them. And ultimately, it is your responsibility as the potential buyer. Zonings and overlays, what are they? How they can impact your home purchase? and a specific mention about tree protection zones. Be sure to check your local guidelines, and this episode is very Victoria-specific, but highlights general principles and make sure that buyers need to be aware of. Remember, if you like my podcast, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform that you may use, or just maybe leave five stars on every particular platform. But please leave a positive review. I love reading positive reviews, uh, particularly in Apple Podcast. And, um, you know, if you want to say something bad about it, my podcast, contact me first. Um, don't make a bad review online. Um, you know, like I really try and put a lot of effort into these episodes with a lot of detail. So I want to improve. So if you have any comments or suggestions, contact me privately. Facebook me, Twitter me, doesn't matter. A lot of people private message me. I'll try and get back to you as soon as I possibly can. Now, the more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to this podcast. So please keep them coming. My name is Dev Raga, and this is My Millennial Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.